0: I recently endured a torrid couple of days. I mean, It's holiday season, and with the weather as it's been lately, one has to seize opportunities to get out and about as they arise. So a couple of dry, sunny days back to back a couple of weeks ago found me out on the road seeking venues for relaxing walks. A trip to the New Forest was, however, marred by constant encounters with bad drivers. They seemed to be relentless in their stupidity and recklessness. And most were driving BMWs. You know, I don't count myself as a brilliant driver, merely an adequate one. But when some idiot overtake, or these at attempts to overtake me, as I'm attempting to overtake a cyclist on a narrow country road, just as we were entering a 30 mile, mile an hour restriction halfway up a hill, incidentally, I think I have the right to get judgmental about our comparative driving skills. Likewise, When another idiot tailgates me for several miles on a narrow forest road with a 40 mile an hour restriction and the very real risk of ponies and other livestock wandering onto the road, I think I have a right to get annoyed with them when my braking and clearly indicating my intention to take a a left turn into a clearly marked turning apparently enrages them to the extent of blaring their horn and furiously gesticulating at me. I mean, if you're driving so close to my rear bumper that my gently braking and slowing causes you problems, then you are too close and at fault. And I know that my brake lights and indicators were working. I checked both before setting out because I'm that kind of smug guy. Naturally, in both cases, I responded with some internationally recognised sign language of my own. It is instances like these, and there were several more similar instances, all involving BMW drivers. Help me understand the phenomena of road rage. Even the most mild mannered of drivers would surely be moved to punch out these idiots if only they could catch them. Anyway, the question which then formed in my mind, of course, was one of what moves people to drive like this, particularly in particular makes of car, it seems. What moves them to suddenly take leave of their senses and behave like complete assholes on the road? I mean, you wouldn't behave like that in any other walk of life because you'd very quickly get decked by someone. As I say, a common thread here is the fact that vehicles involved were mainly BMWs and other German makes. And I think we've got to look at this. I mean, I don't... I'm not because I don't pay much attention to car advertising now. But I do recall that BMW, at one time, at the peak of their popularity, were marketed on the very basis of superiority. They were superior cars, and therefore, if you drove them, you were somehow superior. And I think that's part of the mentality of the people who drive them. They are superior. The rules do not apply to them. They must be very important because they're driving a car like a BMW. The disturbing thing, of course, is that certainly this was the advertising in the UK. I don't know how they're marketed elsewhere, but it's entirely playing upon a British stereotype, wartime stereotype of, of Nazi Germany and the master race. We are superior. Our technology is superior. Which, of course, does beg the question, of course, if their technology was so superior during World War II, why did they lose? But it is rather disturbing that this is what it's based upon. And it's not just BMWs. A lot of other German brands are, German motor brands, are marketed on that idea that they are technically superior and therefore Again, you are superior if you drive. drive Porsche, obviously. And let's not forget, they made bloody tiger tanks and things during the war. Uh, Likewise, Mercedes, they say we're superior and classy. Audi used to like to say they're superior and classy. Now they're marketed rather like BMWs, you know, basically assholes of the world. Come and drive an Audi. You don't have to obey any rules of the road vw is is an interesting one um i'm obviously well aware of their link with porsche but the current volkswagen company actually um, traces its history back not to pre-war when the first beetles were produced the first volkswagen people's cars were produced under the Nazi regime. It was all a big con because ordinary people never got their hands on them. You had to be a party member. Not that many were actually produced before the war. Of course, during the war, uh, the running gear was used as the basis for the German Kubelwagen, uh, their equivalent to a jeep. It actually dates back to post-war and to the British uh, sector of what was to become um, West Germany, the Federal Republic of Germany. Where the Volkswagen, the factory which has produced the Volkswagen car and the Cooper wagons, was based. And there was a desperate need to provide work for Germans there, a desperate need for cheap vehicles as well in Germany and elsewhere. And uh, as a result, the British military um, control in that area actually reactivated the, the factory and put a mildly modified version of, of the Volkswagen Beetle, as it now was known, it back into production and also used the chassis as the basis for, for the um, pickup truck and camper van. So, interestingly, um, Volkswagen, despite the origins of the design, the actual company doesn't have the same sort of links to that era of Germany that the other car manufacturers do you know, they were all busy making stuff, you know, making war material, BMW made engines for the German bombers Luftwaffe bombers that used to drop bombs on the UK during the Blitz uh, you know, Mercedes made staff cars for, for and, and trucks for, for the German army but VW is interesting and I think that's re- always reflected in its marketing in the UK um, they weren't seen as is this superior brand so much. They weren't marketed. Um, they were the people they were, they, they were marketed as a friendly populist line of vehicles, and increasingly though the performance orientation, like with the VW Golf GTI, things like that. <clears throat> but it's interesting. They've never seemed to attract quite the same level of. Idiot driver. Other uh, German brands do, interestingly, and there's that difference in the marketing and the perception of the company. But anyway, there you go. I mean, it, it, it and I have to say, these experiences with bad drivers um, still continue. I, mean, I felt myself lucky the other day when I was um, uh, driving back from the from the forest when I only encountered one. Um, lunatic vehicle and that was just as I was coming out of Brockenhurst heading back towards Lindhurst I mean you know we're still in the 30 mile an hour zone and finally this guy in a van behind me he just couldn't resist anymore and he had to overtake me I mean there was only a few, few few, hundred yards to before we got to the national speed limit zone you know 60 mile an hour zone oh no he had to overtake me into the face of oncoming traffic There he was, parallel, beside me, in the lane beside me, um, with cars heading towards him, as if he was trying to play chicken with the oncoming cars, despite the fact that he was the one in the wrong lane. Somehow he avoided hitting the lead oncoming vehicle. And off he went down the road, accelerating more and more. I don't know why. Uh, It won't necessarily get you anywhere quicker. Um, but there you go And guess what he was driving I mean I said he was driving a van Guess what make it was Yeah that's right A Mercedes German I rest my case
1: We regret all flights have been postponed Until further notice Within 48 hours Your country will be a desolate wilderness Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer presents Battle beneath the earth. This is priority. Double scramble the line. They're crawling under us, I tell you. Just like ants. Was it a nightmare or was it real? While we've been wasting billions up there, they've been working down there where it counts. Was this the scientific breakthrough our leaders could not ignore or was it a dangerous delusion. You might wind up in a padded cell along with Kramer. Why was this man pronounced a raving lunatic? You're going to wipe right off the map. What dark forces controlled his mind? Greed? Killer instinct? (gasps) Or diabolical persuasion? More than a hundred million will perish. Was it true that under our very feet, a vast graveyard was being opened by the most brilliant mass murderer of all time? Only this man and a handful of volunteers dared to enter the hidden world. A lurking death could wear a pretty face. And a terror of unimaginable fury waited to annihilate the civilized world in one titanic battle beneath the earth. Starring Kerwin Matthews as Commander Shaw, Vivian Ventura as Steeler, Peter Arne as the tormented scientist Kramer, and Martin Benson as Chun Lu, Lord of War. Warning, anyone who cannot bear the abyss of hell, prepare yourself. For Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer's, battle beneath
0: the earth. The late 60s were a marvellous era for low-budget British filmmaking. Not only were the likes of Hammer, Amicus and Tigon knocking out small-scale movies across a range of genres, but it was a time when it was still possible for independent producers to get films picked up by US distributors. It helped, of course, if they could be passed off as U.S. productions, even if they were shot entirely in the U.K. Such was the case with Battle Beneath the Earth in 1967, which, despite having an American lead in the form of Kerwin Matthews, several recognisable American character actors in support, and a U.S. setting, was actually shot at Elstree Studios rather than Hollywood. A hook-up with MGM meant that independent producers Charles Reynolds and Charles... F. Vetter, got, to, got the use of MGM UK's Borehamwood Studios, which helped to give the film a slicker look than might usually be expected from a B-movie. Nonetheless, its UK origin is given away by the presence of Ed Bishop, Britain's favourite stock American actor, and another and a number of other recognisable British character actors and supporting roles, most notably Peter Arne as a US scientist, Earl Cameron as a US soldier, and Martin Benson and Peter Elliot, As a Chinese general and a Chinese scientist respectively. It was still very much the norm in 1967 for white actors to play ethnic roles and Benson and Elliot were frequently cast as Chinese, Japanese or Indian. The low budget is betrayed by the fact that the cave walls and the underground sequences look decidedly insubstantial, not to mention plastic. While the exterior of the top secret US Navy research facility looks suspiciously like a typical British office building Probably the production offices at Street. The US location established by the fact that the hero parks his Ford Mustang outside. Ah, And a left-hand drive Mustang at that, just to emphasise, we're in America guys. Stock footage and back projection is used to create the Las Vegas setting of the pre-title sequence. Although it isn't too badly done, establishing the film's North American setting from the outset. Many of the military props look as if they were left over from a war move, from a World War II movie, with US servicemen wielding all sorts of obsolescent ordnance like grease guns and Garand rifles and driving World War II era jeeps. The Chinese also drive around their tunnels in Second World War German Kubler wagons for some reason, while the lasers on their boring machine look suspiciously like heavy-duty torches. Despite the low budget, The film moves commendably swiftly, wasting little time before we get down to our first titular conflict, an underground skirmish between US and Chinese forces that establishes most of the scenario's key points, the plot to detonate nuclear weapons under US cities and other strategic locations in tunnels cut by the Chinese using their laser borer vehicle. During the late 60s, Red China had replaced for a period the Soviet Union as as filmmakers favoured contemporary enemy of freedom. But it is notable that the makers of Battle Beneath the Earth, for some reason, seem keen not to upset China too much, presenting its villain as a rogue Chinese general acting without official sanction. Battle Beneath the Earth was a great favourite of mine when it used to turn up on TV in the 70s. Something about it piqued my young imagination. Perhaps it was because it was pretty much unique amongst the science fiction B-movies of its era in its choice of setting. While other films of the genre set their action in space or underwater, or tried to create exotic earthbound locations in the studio as backdrops their action, Battle Beneath the Earth went underground. A cynic might say that this was simply a ruse to allow a location that could be created on a low budget in a studio, but I prefer to think that it represented a striving for originality on the part of the makers. Certainly, this setting gives the film a claustrophobic feel and makes the action sequences seem, far, seem more intimate, forcing the protagonist into close-up, face-to-face confrontations. It also neatly confines the action sequences to manageable proportions, thereby keeping the budget down. To my younger self, It seemed an exciting experience full of intriguing ideas like the tracked laser-boring vehicles fielded by both sides, the travel tubes used by the Chinese, not to mention the very concept of an enemy building a secret network of tunnels undetected beneath our feet. Seen again as an adult, its faults seem all too obvious. Quite apart from the phony US setting and low budget, the film is undermined by a weak script. Not only is the dialogue clunky and the characters never rise above the level of stereotypes, but the script is also poorly structured, suddenly introducing a female lead stroke love interest two-thirds into the running time, and characters that just vanish mid-plot and are seemingly forgotten about, for instance. Moreover, some of the key sequences seem very poorly thought out. At the end, for example, the hero foils the villain's attempts to defuse the bomb is activated by the expedient of taking the Allen key needed to open it up from its carrier's toolkit. Begging the question of why the villain doesn't simply use the toolkit from one of the other bomb carriers parked alongside. Instead, he meekly sits down and awaits his demise. There seems to be a lot of hate for this film out on the web, which I feel is undeserved. Battle Beneath the Earth might not be the big-budget epic its publicity implied that it was, but it is a pretty solid B-movie, typical of its era. Moreover, at least it, le- it at least has a reasonably original idea at its heart and runs with it. Director Montgomery Tully, a veteran of British B-movies, including fun space opera The Terranauts, uh, also made in 1967, and the intriguing ghost story The House on Marsh Road from 1960, for whom this was his last directorial credit, keeps things moving along at a brisk, efficient pace, providing 90 minutes to serve undemanding entertainment.
1: The motion picture you are about to experience is fiction. The prophecy is not... I would rather have been scared into heaven than have to go through this. Mark IV Pictures presents A Distant Thunder, a story of tribulation and the we end times. That the hymn should not perish, but have everlasting life. It begins where a thief in the night ended.
0: No! I finally had the misfortune to see one of Mark IV's quartet of end times-themed films. Made between 1972 and 1983, these crudely made religious movies have proven popular with certain Christian denominations in the US. The one I caught was the second, 1978's A Distant Thunder, which followed the first, A Thief in the Night, after a gap of six years, with the continuing cast members looking correspondingly older, but sadly no better actors. This one follows the heroine of the first film, Patty, played by Patty Dunning. Most of the main cast seem to play characters with the same first name as their own. And her friends are trying to deal with the aftermath of the rapture. With all the devoted Christians, including Patty's grandmother and their husbands, having ascended to heaven, the US starts to slide into chaos as the Book of Revelations is enacted. Cheaply. In the maker's warped vision of Christianity, converting after the event won't help anyone who couldn't be bothered to accept Jesus into their lives and unquestioningly follow the tenets of some cracked fundamentalist theology, has to suffer as Armageddon loons. But what about God is love, asked Patty of her silver-haired granny in a flashback. Apparently, according to Grandma, that only applies before the rapture and to people who give over their lives to kick-ass, take-no-prisoners Christ and his war on any rival belief system. Being secular, showing tolerance to the beliefs of others, or merely mildly questioning the scriptures why getcha condemned, first on earth during the end times and then eternally in hell. The worldview of these people is truly terrifying, rejecting out of hand science, reason and even compassion if it conflicts with their own narrow belief system. Even more scarily, though, is the fact that these beliefs seem to persist. A distant thunder lays out many of the fundamentals of the current conspiracy fantasies that seem to grip so many idiots. There's the whole world government created via the UN and trying to control our lives on the pretext of saving us. Post-rapture, the United Nations Imperium of Total Energy, UNITE, see what they did there, is created to govern the world during the emergency, restricting free movement and rationing food, fuel, and access to vital services. If you don't comply with Unite's edicts, you get rounded up by their armed paramilitary and taken away. Sound familiar? Then there's the mark of the beast. If you don't agree to be stamped with it, you lose your access to food and services. Going back to Patty's grandma... The old codger makes the, an analogy between the mark and having to use a credit card instead of cash to buy things. Both are a form of control. Another familiar refrain, and in fact, the day after I saw that film, I saw on Twitter all the usual nutters fawning over Piers Corbyn, a crackpot of such magnitude. He makes his brother, former la- failed Labour leader and current cult leader Jeremy Corbyn, look sane and reasonable. Anyway, they're falling over him for his defiance of attempts by them to impose the cashless society by paying with cash at a card payment only supermarket. Which, you know, seems a pretty stupid thing to do. If you go if it actually says there card payments only, then you know, if you don't want to pay with a card, don't shop there. Anyway, all the same nonsense about state surveillance and the like were trotted out by these these nutters. You know. And I'm pretty sure though that neither MI5, GCHQ, the CIA, or the WEF, they being the current bogeymen of choice, have any interest at all in the fact that the other day I bought two, two Greek-style yogurts at Lidl and paid with a card. You know, because they'll know about it, apparently. I don't think they care. The cashless society is the modern mark of the beast, and the WEF, the, U, the new unite, it seems and social media is the new Mark IV productions spreading and sustaining this utter, utter nonsense.
1: Speculation is running high that some alien force from outside our system has declared war on our planet. And there will be no place to hide. Hide a thief in the night. I wish we'd all been ready. Now to the screen comes a powerful story of Bible prophecy. I know what's
0: going on is evil, but
1: I'm not going to join it. A Thief in the Night is coming from Mark 4 Pictures in Colour. Please do not reveal the ending.
0: A couple of weeks ago, i ended the week feeling rough as a dog's ass, and it just went downhill from there. My fever broke overnight on a Friday into a Saturday, and I woke up literally drenched in sweat, but not before I'd had one hell of a fever dream. Now, I'm not a violent man, and my dreams rarely involve violence, but this one was wall-to-wall violence. As I remember it, the zombie apocalypse apocalypse had taken place, but the zombies weren't the problem. They were just shambling utterly harmless wrecks who could be pushed out of the way. The problem, so it seemed, were these religious cultists who were wandering around wearing hoods and robes, So I was mowing them down with a submachine gun, left, right and centre. Actually, to be accurate, it was a grease gun, an M3 submachine gun, if you don't know. Uh, It replaced the M1 Thompson uh, submachine gun in US service during World War II. Um, Anyway, as I said, it was this grease gun I was using to, to, to make them eat lead, except when I was blowing them away with a pair of Colt 45 automatics. Anyway, sometimes I was massacring them solo, sometimes with a sidekick, sometimes there's a whole group of us. I don't know what sort of cult these dudes were running, just that they were bad news and had to be stopped. So I just blew them away wherever I saw them. At one point I popped up from behind a bar, or come to think of it, it might have been an altar, and opened fire with those 45s. Is it any wonder that I woke up soaked in sweat? I was left wondering what had inspired this bizarre post-apocalyptic fever dream. I thought, thought that maybe the zombie apocalypse back, background might be a clue. I'd watched Zombieland again a couple of nights before. Take It was on TV when I switched on when I came back from the pub, so I found myself slumped on the sofa watching it. But the problem in the dream weren't the zombies, though. It was those religious cultist weirdos. The only obvious cinematic analogy that immediately came to mind was The Omega Man, which, had, which featured Charlton Heston gunning down nocturnal mutants who had some crazy religious cult in dressed and dressed in hooded robes. Except I haven't watched that movie in a couple of years. Then again, I did recently catch the end of Beneath the Planet of the Apes, which not only features Charlton Heston, but also some cloaked and hooded mutants who worshipped a nuclear bomb. Perhaps the sight of old Chuck doing some cultist bashing had triggered my memories of the Omega Man, with the two films combining with Zombieland in my subconscious to create my fever dream. Another clue, doubtless, lay with the anachronistic armory I was using to kill those cultist bastards. Something mean, grease guns and forty fives are very much World War II vintage. But I'd most recently seen them, not in a World War II movie, but in the aforementioned Battle Beneath the Earth from 1967, so which we discussed a little bit earlier, which featured them and lots of other anach- anachronistic military equipment quite prominently presumably because they were what the props department had to hand. Much like much like the way in which our sleeping minds seemed to create dramas assembling them from whatever recent memories and incidents are to hand.
1: Right, now, Kim, we're bottled up here. You've got to cut us apart out. I'll set up the first batch of the cover party right now. Take your approach and land the other side of the river. The other side of the river. We will come out to you. Repeat, we will come out to you, over. Okay, gotcha, Harry. Coming in now, over. Right, first match. You son of a- Vengeance be mine, says the outsmarted. We really are all burned up with this new arrangement, right, Denver? Mercenaries obsessed with hate. Come on, let's get it. Each vying for the other's death. They race against the last grenade. Grigsby, heading a team of cutthroat mercenaries breaking into China to do the dirty work no self-respecting army would undertake. I got some heavy bread to lay on guys who get the right know-how. Interested? The answer to that is pointing straight into your stomach. Your move, Harry. This is madness,
0: sir. Grigsby defies every taunt, every
1: disaster to finish the job. Someone has to end the madness. Someone has to pull the pin on the last grenade.
0: The 1970s The Last Grenade was one of those films that used to inhabit the late night schedules on ITV in the mid to late 70s, when mid-budgeted small-scale pictures like this were still promoted as big events by the TV companies. Distributors still jealously guarded the biggest hits, often keeping them off of TV for a decade or more after their initial releases. Consequently, The Last Grenade premiered on TV with a reasonable fanfare, It was a relatively recent release and it featured a cast of name actors. Unfortunately, it was also a time when I still wasn't old enough to be allowed to stay up and watch such films, especially violent-looking ones like The Last Grenade. So watching it became a Moby Dick-like prospect, something to eventually be hunted down and viewed when I was an adult, which turned out to be more difficult than anticipated as it became one of those films which just seemed To vanish from sight completely, it was pushed out of the TV schedules by the flood of newer releases that hit UK TV screens in the 80s as distributors relaxed their their restrictions on TV showings and it never seemed to have been released on home video of any kind. There was eventually a Blu-ray release. I've also searched streaming services, both legit and dodgy, in vain for The Last Grenade. I was finally able to catch up with it though, Uh, recently when it turned up on YouTube. So, was this personal white whale of a movie worth waiting for? Well, it has to be said that it is a very uneven experience, never really settling into a rhythm or style, and never really seeming to know where it is going or what it wants to be about. The obvious point of comparison is another movie about mercenaries released a couple of years earlier, 1968's Dark of the Sun, also known as The Mercenaries. Both films use the then recent conflict in the Congo as a background, but whereas Darker the Sun plays out its story entirely in the Congo, actually Jamaica, because it's t- considered too dangerous to actually film anywhere near the real Congo, And it, along with a straightforward plot involving the rescue of some rebel-held hostages. The Last Grenade uses the conflict simply as the scene-setter, establishing the characters and central conflict which motivate the subsequent narrative. The opening Congo set scene of The Last Grenade actually contains its main action set piece as Major Grigsby, played by Stanley Baker, and his mercenaries awake rescue by helicopter, only to have the helicopter, under the control of Grigs- Grigsby's friend and fellow mercenary Thompson, played by Alex Cord, open fire on them. Smarting from the betrayal, Grigsby subsequently upset, accepts a clandestine assignment from the British government to lead his surviving mercenaries in a series of raids across the borders of the new territories in Hong Kong to try and repel Chinese insurgents being led and advised by Thompson. At which point the film loses direction, alternating between Grigsby's rather desultory attempts to track and kill Thompson and his affair with the local British military commander's wife, played by Anna Blackman. The two plot strands eventually cross over precipitating a final confrontation between Grigsby and Thompson. The problem is that the film constantly frustrates audience expectations. The first attempt to take Thompson ends in near disaster with Grigsby losing one of his crew and only escaping with his own life after Thompson inexplicably spurns the opportunity to kill him. Rather than hit back, Grigsby's subsequent campaign against the insurgents seems to peter out in favour of his romance with the general's wife. A confrontation between Thompson and Grigsby's remaining crew in in a Hong Kong nightclub keeps the flagging action moving, but not for long. But the final confrontation itself ends up feeling very anticlimactic. Aside from the slack plotting, the film also suffers badly from a lack of proper characterization of its pr- protagonists. In the case of Grigsby, the characterization comes less from the writing than it does from Stanley Baker himself, who turns on one of his typical obsessive granite-hard military bastard performances, successfully suggesting a degree of emotional complexity to the character through his relationship with Honor Blackman's character. But as I say, that seems to be all coming from Baker rather than, than, than being, actually being in the script. But while Grigsby is at least a cliché, Thompson is devoid of any real characterization, portrayed by Alex Cord as simply a sniggering and arrogant killer for hire. At least we can understand Grigsby's motivation, a desire for revenge at his betrayal and his own personal code of honour. But what is Thompson's motivation, other than money, for betraying his friendships and loyalties? We never know and are never offered a clue, making the whole conflict between the two characters seem empty and pointless. All of which contrast poorly with that other mercenary film of the year, The Dark of the Sun, which not only has a clear-cut plot involving driving its action along, but also provides the audience with far more charismatic protagonists than Rod Taylor's mercenary leader, and his sergeant played by Jim Brown. This film also featured a conflict between fellow mercenaries, albeit as, for most of the film, a subplot, as Taylor uh, clashes with with a racist ex-Nazi subordinate. This conflict actually amounts to something, providing Dark of the Sun's protagonist with a climactic confrontation between his military professionalism and duty and his desire for personal revenge, all of which is why Darker the Sun is the superior film. That said, The Last Grenade isn't a total washout. There are glimmerings of an intelligent drama about mercenaries and the morality of their use, but it doesn't develop any of its ideas properly. It's very well staged, though, with excellent location shooting in Spain, standing in for the Congo, and Hong Kong. And Gordon Fleming's direction is perfectly adequate, with the set pieces well mounted, but is ultimately defeated by an episodic script that never allows the film to establish an even pace. The cast is also pretty heavyweight for this sort of film, and um, they mainly deliver decent enough performances despite an inadequate script. In addition to Baker, Blackman, and Cord, <coughs> It also boasts Richard Attenborough as the general, Ray Brooks as a junior officer, and Andrew Keir, Rafe Johnson, John Thorne, Julian Glover as Grigsby's crew. Like Dark of the Sun, which was derived from the Wilbur Smith novel of the same name, The Last Grenade also has a literary origin, in this case John Sherlock's 1964 novel The Ordeal of Major Grigsby. The source novel was set during the 1948 Malaysian emergency, one of a number of post-war colonial conflicts the UK became embroiled in. The film adaptation updated the action to the 60s, relocating the action to uh, to the Congo and Hong Kong and losing much of its political context in the process. While Sherlock co-wrote the original adaptation with Kenneth Ware, it was subsequently rewritten by James Mitchell. The number of writers involved and the number of rewrites perhaps explaining the final script's unevenness and apparent lack of direction. The Last Grenade was one of two films that Stanley Baker starred in for producer Dimitri de Grunewald in 1970. The second being the Peter Hall-directed heist film Perfect Friday, which is easily the superior film of the two, far better scripted with better characterisations and smoother plot development. The Last Grenade remains worth watching for the sight of a number of soon-to-be household-named British actors in early roles, if nothing else. But ultimately, is a frustrating viewing experience, never fulfilling the early promise held out by the opening sequence.
1: Dr Edmund Redding, who heads the staff at Colin Research Foundation in Pasadena, has departed for Yucatan for what he has described as an objective first-hand search of the Great Pyramid there. Doctor, I'd like you to tell us everything you know about Dr. Redding, about his work. Dr. Redding was one of the few who uh, dropped everything else to plunge into aggression on a full-time basis.
0: 1965's Face of the Screaming Werewolf is arguably the ultimate Jerry Warren picture. Warren turned his attentions in the 60s away from simply directing and producing his own low budget features to re editing foreign language films, usually adding a few newly shot scenes of American actors to provide English dialogue scenes, and often, often adding a voiceover to explain other plot points, then releasing them to the US drive in market under new English titles. Most famously, he took Mexican horror film La Momia Azteca from 1957 and re-edited it into uh, 1963's Attack of the Mayan Mummy. Not satisfied with this, Warren decided to make a few more bucks out of La Momia Azteca by re-editing it again and combining it with parts of another Mexican film he'd bought, La Casa del Terra from 1959. The main attraction for Warren of, of the latter film, a horror comedy starring Mexican comic Tintan, was presumably the presence of Lon Chaney Jr. playing a mummy, which, when revived by a mad scientist, turns out to be a werewolf. I'm guessing that, having cut out most of Tintan's role and added in some English language scenes with US actors, Warren found the resultant film running severely short, Swatted so in some sequences from La Momia Azteca, which he already had the rights to. The finished film, which still only runs just over an hour, is an absolute mess, rarely making any sense in plot terms, with characters appearing and vanishing at random as their respective Mexican footage is used up. Starting with an archaeological expedition inspired by a psychic's visions of a past life while under hypnosis, the plot proceeds to the discovery of two mummies, one very much alive, the other inert. Back in the US, the professor leading the expedition is suddenly murdered. And the living mummy stolen by a mad scientist as a secret lab behind a wax museum where some unidentified and unexplained dude, actually Tin Tan, hero of La Casa del Terra, seems to spend his time asleep on a sofa. In the course of the scientist carrying out some vague experiments on the living mummy, it escapes, goes on a mini rampage, kidnapping the psychic. And then we're told they've both been killed having run over by a car in an unseen incident. So the scientist steals the other mummy, revives it, at which point it turns into a werewolf. Well, eventually the werewolf stroke mummy also goes on a rampage. Luckily, the dude from the wax museum wakes up long enough to beat and burn it to death for no particular reason, or so it seems. Roll closing credits. You can't help but feel that Warren would have been better off simply redubbing and retitling La Casa Del Terra, which in its original form at least made a sort of sense. In the original version, Tin Tan was an attendant at the wax museum, oblivious to the fact that his boss was really a mad scientist who was secretly draining his blood, which is why he's always tired and snoozing on the sofa, for his experiments. The exhibits in the wax museum are the scientists' failed experiments covered in wax. And Tin Tan goes into action at the end because the girl Lon Chaney's werewolf kidnaps is his girlfriend. But hey, I suppose Warren's borderline unintelligible version is justifiable on the grounds that it gives us two mummies instead of one. Face of the Screaming Werewolf went out on a double bill with another of Warren's creations, Curse of the Stone Hand, which he cobbled together from two Chilean films. The great thing about Warren's films are that regardless of whether they are reworkings of foreign language films or composed of entirely original footage, they always look as if they've been coupled together out of footage left over from other projects. Even his last film, 1982's Frankenstein Island, shot in colour on a bigger budget than usual, gives the impression that it is at least two other films stuck together, even though it isn't, feeling as if it was assembled piecemeal as he went along. It is, though, rather like Face of the Screaming werewolf, entertaining in its shram, utterly ramshackle way
1: shipwreck survivor unknown forces lie in wait at frankenstein island what have you done why are you in the cell what have i done what do i do i'll show you look it could be a scientific breakthrough but where would it end What sacrifice of the psyche would be considered extreme when humans are used for experimentation? Ruthless science finds no limit, no boundary, and all because of the obsessions of one man. Mark, I want you to listen to me. We've been friends a long time. Now, you owe something to that friendship. Doc,
0: you were yourself.
1: You wouldn't be asking me to do anything different. Why, have been feeding you dope ever since you got here. Strange beings exist at Frankenstein Island. Strange compulsions. A secret lab with seven million volts of power. It's a mind warp. Frankenstein Island. Rated PG guidance suggested. It.
0: Cricket at the Balmer Lawn Hotel, not an obscure PG Woodhouse novel, but rather something that always seemed to be an annual event. The sight of a cricket match being played in front of the Balmer Lawn Hotel, which, if you didn't know, is a large country hotel just outside of Brockenhurst. As you approach the village from Lyndhurst on the A337, you can't miss it. It's on the right. It is right by the road on the left as you go into Brockenhurst. If you take the left hand turning just after it, not only can you access the hotel, they serve cream teas in the summer, but if you drive on past and follow the road, you'll get to Bewley and from there to Leap Beach. But to get back to the point, when I was a kid, there always seemed to be a cricket match going on in front of the hotel when we drove past on family outings to the beach. Later, when, as an adult, I started making my own trips to the beach in the New Forest, on at least one of my journeys in the course of the summer, I'd see a cricket match in progress. Then, suddenly, it seemed to stop. For year after year, no matter what time in the summer I drove past the hotel, the green would be empty, devoid of any sporting activity, let alone cricket. But finally, this summer, on my earliest trip to the coast, there they were, playing cricket in front of the hotel. Now, the funny thing is that I don't even even like cricket, nor do I have any ideas to who the sides I see playing there are. In fact, I don't even know if that green they play on actually has anything to do with the hotel at all or whether its location is purely coincidental. Yet I find the sight of that cricket match strangely reassuring. As long as people play cricket outside the Balmer Lawn Hotel, then all was right with the world. At least that's what I felt as a child. A feeling that for some unfathomable reason persisted into adulthood. My summer's never f- felt, never, never quite felt complete if I didn't see those cricketers. But this summer can draw to a close with me feeling irrationally content because I saw that bloody cricket match. You know, one summer I might just stop at the Barmer Lawn Hotel when I see the match in progress and try and find out who those teams are. Maybe I'll even drop into the hotel itself as I've been promising myself for years that I do and have a cream tea and scones while watching the cricket.